Book Fourth, Chapter First, Parts Four to Six of Tono Bungay. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. Tono Bungay by H. G. Wells. Book Fourth, Chapter First, Parts Four to Six. Four. That memory of my uncle at the gate is very clear and full. I am able to recall even the undertow of my thoughts while he was speaking. I remember my pity and affection for him in his misery growing and stirring within me, my realization that at any risk I must help him, but then comes indistinctness again. I was beginning to act. I know I persuaded him to put himself in my hands, and began at once to plan and do. I think that when we act most we remember least, that just in the measure that the impulse of our impressions translates itself into schemes and movements, it ceases to record itself in memories. I know I resolved to get him away at once, and to use the Lord Roberts B. in effecting that, it was clear he was soon to be a hunted man, and it seemed to me already unsafe for him to try the ordinary continental routes in his flight. I had to evolve some scheme, and evolve it rapidly, how we might drop most inconspicuously into the world across the water. My resolve to have one flight, at least in my airship, fitted with this like hand to glove. It seemed to me we might be able to cross over the water in the night, set our airship adrift, and turn up as pedestrian tourists in Normandy or Brittany, and so get away. That, at any rate, was my ruling idea. I sent off Cothope with a dummy note to Woking, because I did not want to implicate him, and took my uncle to the pavilion. I went down to my aunt, and made a clean breast of the situation. She became admirably competent. We went into his dressing-room, and ruthlessly broke his locks. I got a pair of brown boots, a tweed suit, and a cap of his, and, indeed, a plausible walking outfit, and a little game-bag for his pedestrian gear, and, in addition, a big motoring overcoat, and a supply of rugs to add to those I had at the pavilion. I also got a flask of brandy, and she made sandwiches. I don't remember any servants appearing, and I forget where she got those sandwiches. Meanwhile, we talked. Afterwards, I thought with what a sure confidence we talked to each other. "'What's he done?' she said. "'Do you mind knowing?' "'No conscience left, thank God. I think forgery.' There was just a little pause. "'Can you carry this bundle?' she asked. I lifted it. "'No woman ever has respected the law, ever,' she said. "'It's too silly. The things it lets you do.' and then pulls you up, like a mad nurse minding a child. She carried some rugs for me through the shrubbery in the darkling. They'll think we're going mooning, she said, jerking her head at the household. I wonder what they make of us, criminals. An immense droning note came, as if in answer to that. It startled us both for a moment. The dears, she said, it's the gong for dinner. But I wish I could help little Teddy, George. It's awful to think of him there with hot eyes, red and dry. And I know, the sight of me makes him feel sore. Things I said, George. If I could have seen, I'd have let him have an omnibus full of scrimgers. I cut him up. 
He never thought I meant it before. I'll help all I can, anyhow. I turned at something in her voice, and got a moonlight gleam of tears upon her face. Could she have helped? she asked abruptly. She? That woman! My God! I cried. Helped? Those things don't help. Tell me again what I ought to do, she said after a silence. I went over the plans I had made for communicating, and the things I thought she might do. I had given her the address of a solicitor she might put some trust in. But you must act for yourself, I insisted. Roughly, I said, it's a scramble. You must get what you can for us, and follow as you can. She nodded. She came right up to the pavilion and hovered for a time, shyly, and then went away. I found my uncle in my sitting-room, in an armchair, with his feet upon the fender of the gas-stove, which he had lit, and now he was feebly drunken with my whiskey, and very weary in body and spirit, and inclined to be cowardly. "'I left my drops,' he said. He changed his clothes slowly and unwillingly. I had to bully him. I had almost to shove him to the airship and tuck him up upon its wicker flat. Single-handed, I made but a clumsy start. We scraped along the roof of the shed and bent a van of the propeller, and for a time I hung underneath without his offering a hand to help me to clamber up. If it hadn't been for a sort of anchoring trolley device of Cothopes, a sort of slip anchor running on a rail, we should never have got clear at all. 5. The incidents of our flight in Lord Roberts B. do not arrange themselves in any consecutive order. To think of that adventure is like dipping haphazard into an album of views. One is reminded first of this, and then of that. We were both lying down on a horizontal plate of basket-work. For Lord Roberts B. had none of the elegant accommodation of a balloon. I lay forward, and my uncle behind me, in such a position that he could see hardly anything of our flight. We were protected from rolling over simply by netting between the steel stays. It was impossible for us to stand up at all. We had either to lie or crawl on all fours over the basket-work. Amidships were lockers made of Watson's all-light material, and between those it was that I had put my uncle, wrapped in rugs. I wore sealskin motoring boots and gloves, and a motoring fur coat over my tweeds, and I controlled the engine by Bowden wires and levers forward. The early part of that night's experience was made up of warmth, of moonlit Surrey and Sussex landscape, and of a rapid and successful flight, ascending and swooping, and then ascending again southward. I could not watch the clouds, because the airship overhung me. I could not see the stars, nor gauge the meteorological happening, but it was fairly clear to me that a wind shifting between north and northeast was gathering strength, and after I had satisfied myself by a series of entirely successful expansions and contractions of the real airworthiness of Lord Roberts B., I stopped the engine to save my petrol, and let the monster drift, checking its progress by the dim landscape below. My uncle lay quite still behind me, saying little and staring in front of him, and I was left to my own thoughts and sensations. My thoughts, whatever they were, have long since faded out of memory, and my sensations have merged into one continuous memory of a countryside lying, as it seemed, under snow, with square patches of dimness, white phantoms of roads, 
rents and pools of velvety blackness, and lamp-jeweled houses. I remember a train boring its way like a hastening caterpillar of fire across the landscape, and how distinctly I heard its clatter. Every town and street was buttoned with street lamps. I came quite close to the South Downs near Lewis, and all the lights were out in the houses, and the people gone to bed. We left the land a little to the east of Brighton, and by that time Brighton was well abed, and the brightly lit seafront deserted. Then I lit out the gas chamber to its fullest extent and rose. I like to be high above water. I do not clearly know what happened in the night. I think I must have dozed, and probably my uncle slept. I remember that once or twice I heard him talking in an eager, muffled voice to himself, or to an imaginary court. But there can be no doubt the wind changed right round into the east, and that we were carried far down the channel without any suspicion of the immense leeway we were making. I remember the kind of stupid perplexity with which I saw the dawn breaking over a grey waste of water below, and realized that something was wrong. I was so stupid that it was only after the sunrise I really noticed the trend of the foam caps below, and perceived we were in a severe easterly gale. Even then, instead of heading south-easterly, I set the engine going, headed south, and so continued a course that must needs have either just hit Ushant or carry us over the Bay of Biscay. I thought I was east of Cherbourg, when I was far to the west, and stopped my engine in that belief, and then set it going again. I did actually sight the coast of Brittany to the south-east in the late afternoon, and that it was woke me up to the gravity of our position. I discovered it by accident in the southeast, when I was looking for it in the southwest. I turned about east and faced the wind for some time, and finding I had no chance in its teeth, went high, where it seemed less violent, and tried to make a course southeast. It was only then that I realized what a gale I was in. I had been going westward, and perhaps even in gusts north of west, at a pace of fifty or sixty miles an hour. Then I began what I suppose would be called a fight against the east wind. One calls it a fight, but it was really almost as unlike a fight as plain sewing. The wind tried to drive me westwardly, and I tried to get as much as I could eastwardly, with the wind beating and rocking us irregularly, but by no means unbearably, for about twelve hours. My hope lay in the wind abating, and our keeping in the air and eastward of Finisterre, until it did, and the chief danger was the exhaustion of our petrol. It was a long and anxious and almost meditative time. We were fairly warm, and only slowly getting hungry, and except that my uncle grumbled a little, and produced some philosophical reflections, and began to fuss about having a temperature, we talked very little. I was tired and sulky, and chiefly worried about the engine. I had to resist a tendency to crawl back and look at it, I did not care to risk contracting our gas-chamber for fear of losing gas. Nothing was less like a fight. I know that in popular magazines, and so forth, all such occasions as this are depicted in terms of hysteria. Captains save their ships, engineers complete their bridges, generals conduct their battles, in a state of dancing excitement, foaming recondite technicalities at the lips. I suppose that sort of thing works up the reader, but so far as it professes to represent reality, I am convinced it is all childish nonsense. Schoolboys of fifteen, 
girls of eighteen, and literary men all their lives, may have these squealing fits, but my own experience is that most exciting scenes are not exciting, and most of the urgent moments in life are met by steady-headed men. Neither I nor my uncle spent the night in ejaculations, nor in humorous allusions, nor any of these things. We remained lumpish. My uncle stuck in his place and grumbled about his stomach, and occasionally rambled off into expositions of his financial position and denunciations of Neil. He certainly struck out one or two good phrases for Neil, and I crawled about at rare intervals in a vague sort of way and grunted, and our basket-work creaked continually, and the wind on our quarter made a sort of ruffled flapping in the wall of the gas-chamber. For all our wraps, we got frightfully cold as the night wore on. I must have dozed, and it was still dark, when I realized, with a start, that we were nearly due south of, and a long way from, a regularly flashing lighthouse, standing out before the glow of some great town, and then that the thing that had awakened me was the cessation of our engine, and that we were driving back to the west. Then, indeed, for a time, I felt the grim thrill of life. I crawled forward to the cords of the release valves, made my uncle crawl forward too, and let out the gas until we were falling down through the air like a clumsy glider towards the vague grayness that was land. Something must have intervened here that I have forgotten. I saw the lights of Bordeaux when it was quite dark, a nebulous haze against black. Of that I am reasonably sure, but certainly our fall took place in the cold, uncertain light of early dawn. I am, at least, equally sure of that. And Mimizan, near where we dropped, is fifty miles from Bordeaux, whose harbor lights I must have seen. I remember coming down at last with a curious indifference, and actually rousing myself to steer, but the actual coming to earth was exciting enough. I remember our prolonged dragging landfall, and the difficulty I had to get clear, and how a gust of wind caught Lord Roberts B. as my uncle stumbled away from the ropes and litter, and dropped me heavily and threw me on to my knees. Then came the realization that the monster was almost consciously disentangling itself for escape, and then the light leap of its rebound. The rope slipped out of reach of my hand. I remember running knee-deep in a salt pool in hopeless pursuit of the airship. As it dragged and rose seaward, and how only after it had escaped my uttermost effort to recapture it, did I realize that this was quite the best thing that could have happened. It drove swiftly over the sandy dunes, lifting and falling, and was hidden by a clump of wind-bitten trees. Then it reappeared much further off, and still receding. It soared for a time, and sank slowly, and after that I saw it no more. I suppose it fell into the sea, and got wetted with salt water, and heavy, and so became deflated, and sank. It was never found and there was never a report of anyone seeing it after it escaped from me. 6. But if I find it hard to tell the story of our long flight through the air overseas, at least that dawn in France stands cold and clear and full. I see again, almost as if I saw once more with my bodily eyes, the ridges of sand rising behind the ridges of sand, gray and cold and black-browed, with an insufficient grass. I feel again the clear, cold chill of dawn, and hear the distant barking of a dog. 
I find myself asking again, what shall we do now, and trying to scheme with brain tired beyond measure. At first my uncle occupied my attention. He was shivering a good deal, and it was all I could do to resist my desire to get him into a comfortable bed at once. But I wanted to appear plausibly in this part of the world. I felt it would not do to turn up anywhere at dawn and rest. It would be altogether too conspicuous. We must rest until the day was well advanced, and then appear as road-stained pedestrians seeking a meal. I gave him most of what was left of the biscuits, emptied our flasks, and advised him to sleep. But at first it was too cold, albeit I wrapped the big fur rug around him. I was struck now by the flushed weariness of his face, and the look of age the gray stubble on his unshaped chin gave him. He sat crumpled up, shivering and coughing, munching reluctantly, but drinking eagerly and whimpering a little, a dreadfully pitiful figure to me, but we had to go through with it. There was no way out for us. Presently the sun rose over the pines, and the sand grew rapidly warm. My uncle had done eating, and sat with his wrists resting on his knees, the most hopeless looking of lost souls. "'I'm ill,' he said. "'I'm damnably ill. I can feel it in my skin.' Then, it was horrible to me, he cried. "'I ought to be in bed. I ought to be in bed, instead of flying about.' And suddenly he burst into tears. I stood up. "'Go to sleep, man,' I said, and took the rug from him, and spread it out and rolled him up in it. "'It's all very well,' he protested. "'I'm not young enough.' "'Lift up your head,' I interrupted, and put his knapsack under it. "'They'll catch us here, just as much as in an inn,' he grumbled, and then lay still. Presently, after a long time, I perceived he was asleep. His breath came with peculiar wheezings, and every now and again he would cough. I was very stiff and tired myself, and perhaps I dozed. I don't remember. I remember only sitting, as it seemed, nigh interminably beside him, too weary even to think in that sandy desolation. No one came near us, no creature, not even a dog. I roused myself at last, feeling that it was vain to seek to seem other than abnormal, and with an effort that was like lifting a sky of lead, we made our way through the wearisome sand to a farmhouse. There I feigned even a more insufficient French than I possessed naturally, and let it appear that we were pedestrians from Biarritz, who had lost our way along the shore and got benighted. This explained us pretty well, I thought, and we got most heartening coffee and a cart to a little roadside station. My uncle grew more and more manifestly ill with every stage of our journey. I got him to Bayonne, where he refused at first to eat, and was afterwards very sick, and then took him shivering, and collapsed up a little branch line to a frontier place called Luzon Guerre. We found one homely inn with two small bedrooms, kept by a kindly Basque woman. I got him to bed, and that night shared his room and after an hour or so of sleep he woke up in a raging fever and with a wandering mind cursing neil and repeating long inaccurate lists of figures he was manifestly a case for a doctor and in the morning we got one in he was a young man from montpelier just beginning to practice 
and very mysterious, and technical, and modern, and unhelpful. He spoke of cold and exposure, and la grippe and pneumonia. He gave many explicit and difficult directions. I perceived it devolved upon me to organize nursing and a sick room. I installed the religieuse in the second bedroom of the inn, and took a room for myself in the inn of Porte de Luzon, a quarter of a mile away. End of Book Fourth, Chapter First, Parts Four to Six. Recording by William Tomko.